بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد مدير بذس السستر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we started off last week starting off the verses of fasting in the Qur'an which were verses 183 to 187 in Surah Al-Baqarah and I mentioned specifically that we'd be leaving 186 to start off today's class with so in verse 186 Allah subhanahu wa says and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, And when my slave asks you, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, concerning me, then, uh, then answer them, I am indeed near to them by my knowledge. I respond to the invocations of the supplicant when he calls upon me without any mediator or intercessor. So let them obey me and believe in me so that they may be led aright. So in this verse, you'll notice that it, it, the, it, something doesn't fit in with this verse. You know, we start off talking about the fiqh of fasting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says fasting was prescribed for you like it, was, like it was for those people before you. Then he talks about Ramadan and the Quran and the sighting of the moon. Then all of a sudden Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completely changes topics and talks about the questioning of, you know, when my slave asks you about me, then tell him that I am near. Tell them that I am near. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring this in in the middle of the verses of Ramadan? Anyone want to take a guess? Why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring in his closeness into the verses of Ramadan? How does that fit in? The closeness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Okay, that's definitely one way of looking at it. What's another way of looking at it? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talk about His closeness in the month of Ramadan? Go ahead. Laylatul Qadr, fantastic. So yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had put a special night in Laylatul Qadr. But there's something more particular. I want you to think about the social aspect of Ramadan. What do you notice about the social aspect of Ramadan? I will accept that answer, inshallah. Taib. So what we're trying to get at is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about his closeness in the month of Ramadan because those individuals that were heedless of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout the whole entire year, they will end up finding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the month of Ramadan. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying over here, when my slave asks you about me, then tell them that I am near. So in the month of Ramadan, when someone has forgotten Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the whole entire year, the month of Ramadan comes, he wants to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he wants to know, will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive him? And the answer Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving him is, he is yes, that I am near. I will answer the supplication of anyone that calls upon me. And that is why supplication in the month of Ramadan is the third aspect of ibadah that needs to be focused on. What are the other two aspects of ibadah that need to be focused on in the month of Ramadan? What are the other two aspects of ibadah that need to be focused on in the month of Ramadan? Siyam is fantastic. Salah, no. It's mentioned in the verse prior to this one. Nope. Shahrul Ramadan. 
So the second aspect of ibadah is affiliation with the Qur'an. The third aspect of ibadah, particular to Ramadan, is that like you increased in fasting, like you increased in your recitation of the Qur'an, you need to increase in your dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the interesting thing about dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that it is the easiest act of ibadah to perform. There's no restrictions, no limits on it whatsoever. For every other act of ibadah, you'll find like a lot of prerequisites that need to be met. But when it comes to dua, dua can be made at any time in any state. And the more sincere your dua is, the more likely it will be answered. And that's the beautiful thing about dua. Now, what, does, what do we learn about you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua? What we learn about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua are the actual attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I want to focus on this a bit. I want you to think about someone that you love dearly in this life. It can be your mother, it can be your spouse, it can be your children. Okay? I want everyone to give me one of the characteristics of the people that they love. Okay? Give me one characteristic of someone that you love. Go ahead. Patient. Patient. Fantastic. What's another characteristic of someone that you love? Kindness, fantastic. What else? Caring. Caring. What else? Understanding. Understanding. Fantastic. Honest. Honest. Good. What else? Do you guys not have people to love? Inshallah, <laughs> 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 I'll share my love with you. <laughs> so these are all attributes that you notice, right? About people that you love. Now I want you to see how many of these attributes are found in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many of those attributes are found in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Starting off with, you know, the attribute of kindness and mercy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the example to understand that He is more merciful towards us than our own mothers are, right? The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is one day sitting uh, in the marketplace when this woman has lost her child, she's running around from side to side till, you know, tears start coming down her eyes, she's crying profusely and eventually she finds her child. And those tears of sorrow, those tears of anguish, those tears of pain, they now turn into tears of happiness and joy. And as she picks up her child, the Prophet ﷺ, he turns towards his companions and he says, Do you think that this woman would ever throw her child into the fire? And they said, Kalla ya Rasulullah, she would never do so, she would never throw her child into the fire. And at that time, the Prophet ﷺ defined for us the foundation of our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He tells us, Allahu arhamu bi ibadihi min hadihi bi waladiha. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more compassionate, more loving, more caring, more understanding, more patient with his slave than this mother is with her child, than this mother is with her child. And that is the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's what you notice about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua. You get to see the characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, starting off with generosity. When you look at the aspect of dua, you'll notice in the story of Adam and Iblis, both Adam and Iblis made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Adam alayhi salam, he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness. Iblis, he is asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for more time. Grant me life till the day of judgment. Adam alayhi salam, we know he's a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, righteous man. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers his dua. What do we learn about why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer the dua of Iblis? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer the dua of Iblis? Very good guess, but that's not it. Why did Allah answer the dua of Iblis? To teach us what? Go ahead. Because he was going to make a new Khalifa, the new Khalifa was already there. Furqan? Uh, so, the Shaitan can test the Ummah, like, so that was the result of it. That was the result of it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the dua, and this is what the result was. Mehtab? Something similar so that the non-believers have hope that Allah will 
Okay. Ibrahim, go ahead, buddy. Fantastic, there you go. <laughs> you beat your dad out, good stuff. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing us that everyone's dua will be answered. Regardless of level of piety, level of sin, everyone's dua is going to get answered. What is the wisdom behind that? That is to show the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us in this very verse over here, right? That call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I will answer the call of the supplicator when he calls upon me. So this month of Ramadan is a month to dedicate to dua. Now what else do we learn about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua? We learn the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How do we learn about the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers everyone's dua in one of three ways, in one of three ways. Either he gives the slave what he wants when he wants it, or he delays it for a slave till a time that it is better for him, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't grant him what he asks for, but rather he averts from him an equal amount of evil in his life, an equal amount of evil in his life. When the Sahaba radiallahu anhum uh, you know, heard this from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they said, O Messenger of Allah, then we will increase in making our dua. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he responded by saying, Wallahu akthar. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has even more to give you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has even more to give you. Now when you look at the three ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers duas, he gives you what you want when you want it. He delays it till a time that it is better for you. Or rather, he doesn't give it to you at all, but rather averts an equal amount of evil from your life. How does this show us the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Where's the wisdom in this? Go ahead. You could be asking for something that's not good for you, you don't know. Fantastic. So here's the, the, the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that in His infinite knowledge, in His infinite wisdom, He ultimately knows what's good for you and what is bad for you, right? So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that you're asking for something that isn't good for you, He doesn't punish you by giving it to you, right? Rather, He averts it from your life altogether and protects you from an evil. Or if it's not good for you now and it may be good for you later, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to delay it till that time. And this is from the infinite wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that ties into His mercy, that ties in to His mercy. So what you're coming to see over here, that all the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are in fact intertwined. That His love, His mercy, His justice, His compassion, His, his generosity, all of it is intertwined, right? And this is what you see of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua, what you see of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua. A third element that you notice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through dua, is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is completely different from His creation. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is completely different from His creation. From what aspect? I want you to imagine the person sitting next to you. During this lecture, they keep asking you question after question after question. They're like, hey, you know, can I borrow five dollars? Hey, I'm hungry, can I have some food? Hey, I'm thirsty, can I have something to drink? Hey, you know, what are you doing after the event today? Let's go, you know, hang out or something like that, right? Question after question after question. At times eventually gonna come, you're gonna be like, look, shut up, let me listen, let me do what I need to do, stop asking me, right? That is the nature of human beings. We get upset when people constantly ask us. We hate to be asked, you know, if we could be left alone and not be asked by anyone, that's what we would actually prefer the vast majority of the time. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's the exact opposite. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He gets angry at us when we don't ask Him. And this ties into the element of kibr. You know, a lot of times 
we may think that we're not arrogant and we're not proud and we're not vain, but we see true arrogance and pride when we don't raise our hands and ask of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is, you know, a true sign of arrogance and pride. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply created us for us to worship Him. And one of the simplest acts of worship is asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, with his closer companions, his most entrusted companions, he taught them and developed and instilled inside of them this particular relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of dependence and one of asking Allah alone. Meaning that even if their shoelace broke, they would ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first before they would ask someone to fix it, right? Their, their whip fell off their horse, they would get off their horse, pick it up themselves before they would ask anyone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They hated to ask any of the creation for anything, right? And Sa'adis, that was for the simple fact that they could strengthen their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what happens through dua. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't get angry at us the more we ask of Him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gets angry at us when we don't ask of Him whatsoever. We don't ask of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whatsoever. Now, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala go on to say? فَلِيَسْتَجِيبُوا لِي وَلِيُؤْمِنُوا بِي لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْشُدُونَ So that they can let them call upon me so that I can answer them and that they may believe in me. And so that they may attain guidance, that they may attain guidance. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talk about the concept of belief after making dua? So that I may answer them and they may believe in me. That one of the greatest signs of the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers duas. That there are such particular intimate things in our lives that we want from the bottom of my heart, from our hearts, that sometimes we may ask Allah, sometimes we may not ask Allah. Yet through the generous nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He will answer those du'as whether we ask them or not. And that can only be through the existence of an all-knowing and all-informed, a loving and caring God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ties in the concept of iman after du'a. Then He concludes the verse by saying, لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْشُدُونَ So that they may be led aright. Meaning that if you want to see your level of guidance, then look at how often you're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How often are you asking of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How patient are you with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those duas being answered, right? It all ties in to dua. Now what is the greatest manifestation of dua? Who can tell me that? What is the greatest manifestation of dua? Go ahead. Why? Because it's, it's, full with it's full with asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your answer is correct, the first half of it. So it is a prayer. But we want to know why. Why is the prayer the greatest manifestation of dua? Okay. And what does that have to do with prayer though? What does that have to do with prayer? Think about it and get back to me. Go ahead. You are the closest to Allah, especially when you pray. You are the closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you pray. Okay. That might be in the right direction. Farqan? You're making dua in prayer already. Okay. That was mentioned already. But that's not it. There's something 
Like when you look at the salah itself, what are you noticing about the salah and the nature of dua? You're worshipping him and then you ask? Okay, so you're looking at like Surah Fatiha, right? Sort of on the right track. Anyone else give it one last shot? Why is Salah the greatest manifestation of Dua? Ahlan wa sahlan. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So Yalla, let me put you on the spot. Go for it. Why is Salah the greatest manifestation of Dua? The Prophet said, al is Dua. And there's also hadith as well. Uh, dua, dua is ibadah, yeah. yeah. And the best act of ibadah is salah, right? So the best act, he, so he said the best act of ibadah is salah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> salah on its time. Okay, so salah on its time. Then yeah. so salah on its time is the best, is the man, the greatest manifestation of dua? So salah, the reason why is because Prophet so much and the second reason is because the whole time you're in salah it's all dua like every single part of the salah is dua right okay i love you so much that's why i'll give it to you i'll give it to you well i'll accept that frame so the greatest the reason why salah is the greatest manifestation of dua is because when you look at dua there's etiquettes of dua right so certain things like praising allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sending salah and salam upon the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam asking allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that which is beneficial for you and that which is beneficial for the people around you praising allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his names and attributes all of this are part of the etiquettes of making dua and when you're actually in salah, all of this is actually happening, right? You're praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sending salah and salam upon the Messenger of Allah, calling upon Allah through His names and attributes, asking Allah for what is most beneficial for you and for mankind. When you ask, اِحْدِنَا السِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمُ O Allah, guide us. So that is why it is the greatest manifestation of dua. So now, what we learn about this is that the frequency of our salah is how much dua we should actually be making in our entire lives, right? So each day we're praying minimum five times a day, minimum 17 rak'ahs per day, right? So you wanna make sure that your dua is just on par with that. That throughout the day you're taking time out to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now here's like a, a misunderstanding that some people have. Some people understand from the aspect of dua that dua is only asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dua is not only just asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, dua is of two types. Dua al-ibadah and dua al-talab. Dua al-ibadah is to do the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Saying subhanallah, alhamdulillah, Allahu akbar, la ilaha illallah. This is called dua al-ibadah. Dua al-talab is when you actually ask of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you actually ask of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now here's a tip for you that in your free moments, that's what you should be filling your time with. So recently when I started working out at the gym, between reps, there's like a 45 second break between each rep that I'll take. In those 45 seconds, while you're resting, while you're you know, getting your heartbeat down, while you're, you, while, the, while you're catching your breath, that's an ideal time to fill it with dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You'll notice you're easily able to say you know, any form of dhikr at least 10 times. SubhanAllah 10 times, Alhamdulillah 10 times, Allahu Akbar 10 times, or even combine you know, all three of them 10 times. Now when you do that throughout each workout and each rep, you easily would have said, you know, each one of them like a hundred times at least. What does that do? You're building your garden in paradise, right? The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said the trees in paradise are planted by your adhkar. So each time you're saying SubhanAllah, each time you're saying Alhamdulillah, each time you're saying Allahu Akbar, then your trees are being planted in Jannah for you. And once you have property in Jannah, inshallah you will never be deprived of it. Inshallah you will never be deprived of it. So that's you know, one element of it. Another element of while you're on the bus, 
while you're walking, and it's an ideal opportunity to make dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to make dua, and that's something that should constantly be on our minds and on our tongues. Now this leads us into the real discussion we want to have, which is the fiqh of Ramadan, the fiqh of Siyam. So we finished verse 186, and as I mentioned, we'll be discussing the ahadith from Sahih al-Bukhari in the chapter of fasting. So for those of you that are following along, hopefully online inshallah, it's volume 3 starting at uh, 1773, that is the beginning of the book. But the book of fasting doesn't actually begin till hadith 1891. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, he says, Kitab al-Som, Babu Wujubi Somi Ramadan. So chapter number one, fasting is obligatory in the month of Ramadan. So now, what you learn about the chapter headings inside Sahih al-Bukhari is that Imam al-Bukhari, he actually puts his fiqh inside of the chapter headings. So when you want to learn the fiqh of Imam al-Bukhari, you turn to the chapter headings that are found inside Sahih al-Bukhari. That is where you'll find the opinion of Imam al-Bukhari. So now some of them you may think are very, very obvious. Others are not as obvious, are in fact quite subtle. So the first two chapter heading inside Kitab al-Sawm is actually one that is very, very obvious. And that is fasting is obligatory in the month of Ramadan. So inshallah all of us knew this already, it wasn't something hidden, but he's just stating it so that everyone knows. Now the methodology of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah is that he would always start off with an ayah from the Quran or if there's a relevant ayah from the Quran, and then he would bring the hadith forward. Then he would bring the hadith forward. So Imam al-Bukhari, he brings the verses that we discussed last week from Surah Al-Baqarah as the chapter heading, where he says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ السِّيَامُ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ That all you who believe fasting has been prescribed for you like it was prescribed for those before you in hopes that you may attain taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now for those of you that were here last week, when we mentioned this verse, we said that this verse was talking about fasting when? <coughs> Ashura, fantastic. Now why is the Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah bringing this verse for Ramadan? Why do you think? So all you who believe fasting has been prescribed for you, like it was prescribed for those before you, in hopes that you may attain taqwa. Why is Imam al-Bukhari using this verse instead of the verse that comes, you know, two verses after? Shahrul Ramadan al-Ladhi unzila fihi al-Quran. To establish common grounds. So that's the general context of the verse that we established last week. But Imam al-Bukhari is showing us something else over here. This sort of ties into what we talked about last week as well, in terms of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates things. Go ahead. Fantastic. But like what we were talking about last week is that when this verse was revealed, it was not for fasting in Ramadan. It was for fasting the day of Ashura. Right? The fasting in Ramadan came actually after that. Hassan, what's happening, buddy? How's everything, man? <laughs> I know I said this last time, but would it make sense in this one that Allah was saying that the fasting the people before you should do it too? And because of that, you can do it as well? It's just like a motivation, basically. Um, that may be true, but it's not like a, a part of the discussion over here. So we're looking at why did Imam al-Bukhari choose this verse to show the obligation of fasting in the Ramadan, when this verse doesn't have anything to do with Ramadan? Or does it? That's what we want to establish. So why would Imam al-Bukhari use this verse? Who was here last week? Show of hands. I know you were here last week. You were here last week. Abu Mustafa, you weren't here last week. 
You were here as well. There's one you were here as well. Fantastic. Tell me, why, why is Imam Bukhari using this verse? <laughs> the answer to that is uh, twofold. Answer number one is that Imam al-Bukhari, he's indirectly saying that the verses that talk about the obligation of fasting Ramadan begin with this verse. So from 183 to 187. This is verse 183 over here. This seems to be the popular opinion amongst the scholars as to why Imam al-Bukhari is mentioning this. Number two is that Imam al-Bukhari is talking about a general concept first and then leading it into something specific. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly is making fasting obligatory, right? Kutiba alaykum, meaning it has been prescribed for you, it is obligatory upon you. So the general ruling upon fasting is that it is obligatory. Now which fasting is obligatory? Imam al-Bukhari goes on to substantiate that through the hadith that he brings, through the hadith that he begins. Now this ties us into the first hadith, hadith 1891, narrated Talha bin Ubaidillah, a Bedouin when un with unkept hair came to Allah's Messenger وسلم, and said, O Allah's Messenger, inform me what Allah has made compulsory for me uh, as regards to a salah. He replied, you have to perform the five compulsory salah in a day and night unless you want to offer nawafil. The Bedouin man further asked, inform me what Allah has made compulsory for me as regards to fasting. He said, you have to observe fasting during the whole month of Ramadan unless you want to fast more as nawafil. The Bedouin further asked, tell me how much zakat Allah has enjoyed on me. Thus Allah's Messenger وسلم, informed him about all of the laws of Islam. The Bedouin then said, by him who has honored you, I will neither perform any nawafil, nor will I decrease what Allah has enjoyed on me. Allah's Messenger وسلم, said, if he is saying the truth, he will succeed. He will succeed in another version, or he will be granted paradise, or he will be granted paradise. So here, Imam Bukhari, he took the general understanding of fasting is prescribed for you and obligatory upon you. Now he tells us which fasting is obligatory upon us through this very first hadith, and that is the fasting of the month of Ramadan. So now when you look at this Bedouin man, you see that he came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in the most innocent of ways, right? He came in the way that he was. He didn't, you know, brush his hair, he didn't tidy himself up. He literally came to himself to ask the Messenger of Allah وسلم, these fundamental questions. What we learn about this is that when it comes to seeking knowledge, you can't wait till you're ready to seek knowledge. You're never going to be ready to seek knowledge. Shaitan is going to keep putting whispers in your head, hey, delay seeking knowledge, delay learning what is obligatory upon you because you may not be able to do it. This Bedouin man is showing us an example that come to Islam in the state that you're in. Whatever your state is, that is the state that you come to Islam with and you progress from where you are. Number two is the importance of asking questions that are relevant and important to you. You know, a lot of the times we get into hypotheticals, situations that aren't relevant to us, situations that aren't even practical. This Bedouin man is teaching us that you need to ask what is most relevant to you. So he asks about the Salah. He knows Salah is mandatory. He's trying to find out what is the absolute minimum that if I was to do it, I can get away with this. I will be scot-free, you know, after I do this absolute minimum. And the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Understanding where this man is coming from, that this man is probably new to Islam, doesn't know more. He didn't say, you know what, you have to pray your two sunnahs for Fajr, then your two fard, and then you have your four sunnahs of Dhuhr, then your four fard, and then your two sunnahs after. He didn't burden him with any of that. He just said, look, there's five daily prayers, pray those five daily prayers. Why is the Messenger of Allah وسلم, doing this? He's doing this because you need to speak to people at their level. Right? Someone is new to the faith, you can't overburden them with stuff. Teach them the very basics. Once they've established the basics, then build upon it. 
And each step of the way, the way this is what the Messenger of Allah is telling him. He's giving him as much as the man is asking. What do I have to do with regards to fasting? Fast the month of Ramadan. If you want to do more, there is more. I can tell you about it. But if you're not going to ask, I'm not going to tell. In terms of zakat, the exact same thing. Then, look at the, the, the attitude of this man, subhanAllah, at the end. He said, by the one who has honored you, I will neither perform any nawafil, nor will I decrease in what you, what you uh, have said, what Allah has prescribed. Basically, he's taking an oath. Wallahi, I will never pray any nawafil. I will not fast any you know, you know, non-obligatory fasts. The Messenger of Allah didn't take this personally, right? He knew that this is the level that the man was at. And that is why he's like, khalas, look, if you can do this, inshallah, you will be successful. Trying to encourage the man that, look, start off with this, and inshallah, you will be successful. Now, when you've attended our previous halakas, one thing that we learned is that it is impossible to retain your Islam just with obligatory deeds. It is impossible to retain your Islam just with obligatory deeds. Who remembers why? Why is it impossible to retain your Islam just with obligatory deeds? Fantastic, because the nature of human being is that we will constantly slip. We're constantly being attacked by shaitan. We're constantly giving in to our desires and our weaknesses. When you slip and all you're holding on is to your fara'id, when you slip, you're letting go of those fara'id. Whereas the individual, he has his sunnas, he has his nawafil. When he gets attacked by shaitan, he has a moment of lapse. He might give up his nawafil, he might give up some of his sunnas, but at least he's holding on firm to his fara'id, right? So that is why the, the reality of this is that just holding on to your faith through the fara'id within of itself is next to impossible. We're not going to say completely impossible, but next to impossible. So if you really want to hold on to your faith, you need to make sure you're doing more than the obligatory. And that is why a lot of the times when we're trying to, you know, diagnose our own weakness of faith, you know, why does my iman feel so down? A lot of the times the answer to that question is, the standard we have set for ourselves is just to do the faraid. And as long as we're doing the faraid, we're content with ourselves. You really want to test your iman? Take it beyond the faraid. Struggle with more than the faraid. And then you will notice that you're no longer going to feel those weakness of moments. You will feel that your iman may not be as high as it once was, but you're not going to feel like depleted of iman or burnt out together. You're not going to feel burnt out altogether. So this hadith clearly shows us that the Bedouin man, in his absolute basics, the Messenger of Allah still obligated Ramadan upon this man. Now, when you tie this concept in to a modern day context, that the Messenger of Allah this Bedouin man new to the faith, doesn't want to do more, he still obligates Ramadan upon this man. Tied in with today's scenario, where literally people will openly say, I'm not going to fast in Ramadan because the days are too long. I'm not going to fast in Ramadan because the days are too long. For these people, it is a very, very, you know, scary reality in terms of where they are in the spectrum of Islam versus non-Muslim. Right? When you intentionally want to go against one of the pillars of Islam, intentionally rejecting it, the predecessors did consider this an act of disbelief. Right? It's not as if you tried and you weren't able to do it. That's a completely different scenario. But to say from the outside, onset, openly, that I will not fast in Ramadan, then that is a very scary reality. So if we know such sort of people, you know, it's very important to have this discussion with them that look, hey, Try fasting as much as you can. If you're unable to complete the fast, you know, inshallah, you can make it up after. But to come up with this mentality that I will not fast in Ramadan, that's not acceptable whatsoever. That's not acceptable, not so uh, whatsoever. Hadith number eight, 1892. 
narrated Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma, the Prophet wasallam observed Som on the 10th of Muharram and ordered Muslims to observe Som on that day. But when the fasting of the month of Ramadan was prescribed, the fasting of Ashura was abandoned. Abdullah did not use to observe fast on that day unless it coincided with his routine fasting by chance. So now we're seeing a second hadith over here, which teaching, which is teaching us, you know, several things over here. Number one is that the fasting of Ashura was abrogated. Abrogated in one sense that the ruling of it was abrogated from mandatory to now it is optional if you want to do so. If you want to fast Ashura, there's nothing wrong with that. It was no longer obligatory upon the Muslims. Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhumah, he, he, uh, Imam al-Bukhari states about him that Abdullah did not observe that fast on that day unless it coincided with his routine of fasting by chance. What type of routine is he referring to over here? Go ahead. One day on, one day off, or it could be 13th, 14th, 15th, or it could be Monday, Thursday. You know, various routines are available for fasting outside of Ramadan. And this was to, to show the level of piety of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Now, this shows us that, you know, you can have priorities as well. What is this showing us about the fiqh of Abdullah ibn Umar? This is showing us from the fiqh of Abdullah ibn Umar that that which is consistent is better than that which is just coming out around once a year, right? So he knew that, look, if this day is going to come, you know, on the day that coincides with the days I'm regularly fasting, I'll go ahead and fast it. But if it's not going to coincide, then I'm going to stick with that which is consistent. Based upon the hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, خَيْرُ الْأَعْمَالِ إِلَى اللَّهِ That the best of deeds to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are those that are most consistent, are those deeds that are most consistent. So Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah is choosing consistency over that which is just coming off once in a while. Number two, this is teaching us about the methodology of Imam al-Bukhari. Is that the hadith and the ayat of the Qur'an are meant to be understood and interpreted in light of the understanding of the companions, in light of the understanding of the companions. So when there is an opportunity to mention the opinion of a companion, Imam al-Bukhari will do so to show us that, that look, hey, it's not about Imam al-Bukhari's understanding, it's not about my understanding, it's not about any of your understandings, it's about how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum understood this. This hadith also goes on to show the obligation of Ramadan, that the, uh, an obligation will be only uh, you know, abrogated by another obligation, right? So here the obligation of Ashura was, uh, was abrogated with Ramadan over here. Hadith 1893, Aisha anha, she says, the tribe of Quraysh used to observe Som on the day of Ashura in the pre-Islamic period. And then Allah's Messenger وسلم, ordered Muslims to observe, fast, uh, observe Som on it till the uh, fasting in the month of Ramadan was prescribed, whereupon the Messenger of Allah said, whoever wants to fast on Ashura may fast, and whoever does not want to observe uh, Soma on Ashura may not fast. So this is further reinforcing the previous statement, um, with the exception of, here the Messenger of Allah particularly talks about the fasting of the Quraysh on Ashura. Why are the Quraysh fasting on Ashura? We know why the Jews of Medina were fasting on Ashura, because that was the day they said that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved Musa alayhi salam. Why are the Quraysh fasting on Ashura? What's up beautiful? Why are the Quraysh fasting on Ashura? Yeah. Okay, this one sounds really weird, but was it because they had like an inferiority complex with the, Jewish, with, the, with the Jews and they tried to imitate them? Nope, that is not it. That is not it. I'm going to leave this as your homework, okay? Next week's class is the last class when we finish off the chapter of fasting, inshallah. Why were the Quraysh fasting Ashura? That's your homework, inshallah. I'm not going to give that to you just yet. So you guys have to do this homework.
Can I get like three people that are going to look this up, inshallah? We have one over here, two over there, three over there. So three, you three people are responsible for looking this up and benefiting the class with it. Why were the Quraysh fasting Ashura? So here the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in this hadith again is showing the obligation of fasting in the month of Ramadan, the abrogation of fasting in Ashura, showing us that the Quraysh, they used to fast on Ashura as well, and then showing us that there's levels of fasting. There are levels of fasting. So the first level of fasting is that which is obligatory. The second level of fasting is that which is non-obligatory, is that which is non-obligatory. Now, we move on to chapter number two which is Bab Fadlus Som, the chapter of the virtues of fasting, the virtues of fasting. In this hadith narrated Abu Hurairah anhu, Allah's Messenger وسلم, he said, fasting is a shield, so the person observing, observing Som should avoid sexual relation with his wife and should not behave foolishly and impudently. And if somebody fights with him or abuses him, he should say to him twice, I am uh, fasting. The Messenger of Allah added, By him in whose hand my soul is, the smell coming from the mouth of a person observing fast is better with Allah than the smell of musk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the fasting person, He has left his food, drink, and desires for my sake. This fasting is for me, so I will reward it. I will re I will re I, so I will reward for it, and the reward of good deeds is multiplied ten times. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, now he establishes chapter number two, which are the virtues of fasting. Now, from a psychological perspective, this is very, very important. It's very, very important because Imam al-Bukhari is giving us what we need in terms of motivation of fasting, right? Fasting is not meant to be a simple task. There's meant to be a challenge. There's meant to be difficulty in fasting. So now what can you use as motivation to get through fasting? Imam al-Bukhari made that as the second chapter heading. So after he proves this obligation, now he's going to be talking about what you need in terms of motivation. And this is a very, very beautiful hadith in terms of talking about the virtues of fasting. Virtue number one is that fasting is a shield against the hellfire. Fasting is a shield against the hellfire. Meaning that the individual that is fasting, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will protect this person from the hellfire. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in this hadith, he actually says, As-suyamu junnah, that fasting is junnah. Now, when you look at this concept of uh, jim, noon, ta, right? Or actually the jim and the noon in particular, you'll notice that a lot of words are, are derived from it. Jannah comes from it, jinn comes from it. Fasting is called junnah over here for an element of the fact that you can't see, you know, the true nature of fasting. Meaning when a person is fasting, you can't actually see. You know, Sajjad is fasting today, I can't see that he is fasting, right? So it's something that's hidden from me. The jinn are hidden from me. Jannah is hidden from me, right? It shows us it is something that is concealed. Now, a second thing that it shows us is that this concept of being concealed, fasting will conceal a person from the hellfire. Just like this world of the unseen is concealed from us, that person will be concealed from the hellfire due to fasting. So any individual that wants to protect himself from the hellfire, then let him take uh, fasting upon himself. Let him take fasting upon himself. Now, we mentioned briefly last week, what is the relationship between fasting and, protection, and protecting a person from the hellfire? Why does fasting protect a person from the hellfire? Go ahead, in the back. You have the answer. You have it. Yeah, like, yeah. Fasting like, like, 
protect you from committing sins. So like. Uh, that's it. That's exactly it. That when the person is fasting, two things are happening over here. Number one is that the person is being deprived of you know, putting food in his body, which is giving him more energy, which allows him to focus on other ambitions and other desires. When he deprives his body of this food, his body will naturally be focused on food and will prevent him from committing other sins, will prevent him from committing other sins. That's the physical element of it, that your desire naturally goes down when your body is deprived from food. So it will not fall into the sins and the temptations that the body naturally has. Number two, is that when a person is in a state of fasting, it will naturally increase his dependence upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That, oh Allah, you know, I'm depriving myself of food for you. Please help me get through the day. Realizing that this food is only coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Realizing that Allah has blessed us through, you know, having a, uh, you know, uh, access to food over much of the, the, the creation that is out there where they don't have direct access. So that dependence, that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it increases while a person it is fasting. It increases while a person is fasting. And that is why it will naturally protect a person from the hellfire. Because it's increasing his patience, it's increasing his shukr, it's increasing his reliance upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And more importantly, it's, really, it's reducing the amount of sins that a person will commit. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, goes on to teach us some etiquette. So the person observing fast should avoid uh, sexual relation with his wife and should not behave foolishly and impudently. And if somebody fights with him or abuses him, he should say twice, I am fasting, I am fasting. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says he stays away from his desire, but he also stays away from impudency, which is like bad character and bad akhlaq. So you'll notice that if someone tries to start a fight with you in Ramadan, it's not going to nullify your fast in the month of Ramadan if you get into a fight. Your fast isn't nullified. But the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is reminding us over here that hey, when you're engaging in an act of ibadah, it's meant to improve your akhlaq altogether. It's meant to improve your akhlaq altogether. So someone starts trying to start an argument with you, tell them I am fasting, I am fasting, leave me alone. I'm not going to engage with you, no matter how much you try. And this is a reminder for the other person that look, you know, back down, this person is trying to you know, get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is not in the mood to pick a fight with you. But it shows us that a person who is fasting and is engaging in ibadah is required to have a higher level of conduct, a higher level of character where he says, I will not pick a fight with you, nor will I engage with you, because I'm dedicating myself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not be pleased with this. Number two, it shows us over here that you are allowed to tell people that you're fasting, right? This person, he's trying to engage with you, you tell him, I am fasting. You openly telling this individual that, look, can someone make sure that she doesn't walk out, inshallah? You got it? Okay, fantastic. Um, you can openly tell the person that uh, you're fasting and it's not going to nullify your intention. Even though fasting is a very, very private deed that no one knows about it. But over here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His Messenger sallallahu is showing us that for the greater good of preventing a fight and getting a person to back down from you, you are allowed to tell them that you're fasting. You are allowed to tell them that you are fasting. Number three, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu is teaching us about the concept of protecting our deeds. There are certain things that we will do that aren't related to the deed itself, but that deed, in order to protect it, this deed needs to take place as well. So, like I mentioned, getting into a fight, getting into an argument will not nullify your fast. However, you are reducing your opportunity of increased ajr by engaging in that. 
So the more patience you show, the more resilience you show, the more amount of ajr you will have. And this is what the Messenger of Allah is teaching us, that you protect your fast by disengaging from these deeds. That you protect your fast by disengaging in your deeds. Number three, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he goes on to say that by him in whose hand is my soul, the smell coming out of the mouth of a person who is fasting is better with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the smell of musk. So one of the greatest fears that people have in the month of Ramadan, as petty as it may be, the Messenger of Allah has addressed it over here. That, hey, how can I go to work and I'm going to have bad breath, right? How can I go to school and I'm going to have bad breath? What if someone wants to talk to me and I have bad breath at that time? Here the Messenger of Allah is teaching us that, hey, at the end of the day, who are you trying to please? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or His creation? Now this doesn't mean you shouldn't please the creation, what this means is that your priority should be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So don't be petty and thinking that, hey, I have bad breath, it's going to offend someone, right? People should understand that this person is fasting. That is why he may have, you know, uh, bad odor coming from his mouth. But at the end of the day, they're not going to take this offensively or personally. Why? Why will this person not take it offensively or personally because of you having bad breath while you're fasting? Go ahead. Exactly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls the hearts. And if He wants someone to love you, He will cause them to love you. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't want someone to love you, He will cause them not to love you. So particularly when you're doing something to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will naturally become beloved to the creation and you will not offend anyone with it. You will not offend anyone with it. That is what we learn over here. That make your priority Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He will take care of your dunya and akhirah affairs. He will take care of your dunya and akhirah affairs. What's up, little girl? How's your phone? Anything interesting on the phone? No? He will take care of it for you. And next thing that we learn from this is that the Messenger of Allah is making this example very, very relevant. At that time, one of the most beloved fragrances to the people were the smell of musk. And the Messenger of Allah is saying, hey, just like musk is beloved to you, the smell of the fasting person, of the odor coming from his mouth, is more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than we love musk. And this, you know, should establish something in our heart that I should be doing something that is making my Lord happy. I should be doing something that will make me more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what you actually want to focus on. Now this also teaches us a very valuable lesson, that what we may consider good, it's not necessarily good in the realm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what we may consider bad is not necessarily bad in the realm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You see someone with bad breath in this world, naturally you're turned off and it puts you off. But to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because it's an act of ibadah, this is beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we may generally consider bad is actually good with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To teach us once again that our understanding of good and bad is not limited just to our senses, but it has to be related to revelation as well. Good and bad, the concept of morality and ethics, it needs to be tied into revelation. We will never truly know what is good and bad just by our own understanding. Revelation needs to be there to uh, put that into check. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, goes on to say, and this, is, this part of the hadith is actually hadith Qudsi, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, He has left His food, He has left His drink, He has left His desires for my sake, Fasting is for my sake and I will reward it with uh, you know, the, the way that I, I like to reward it. And the, good, uh, the, the, the reward for good deeds is multiplied 10 times. So here, the first thing we learn is that 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala particularly addresses the chapter, uh, the, the concept of fasting. That meaning when each and every one of us fasts, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that we are fasting. He understands and knows that we've given up drink, we've given up our food, we've given up our desires, we've given up these various other temptations to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes that and He's appreciative of that. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He abandoned those things for my sake. So that is why it's very important that when those things are abandoned, it's not because you didn't have time to eat that day, it's not because there was some other priority that prevented you from eating that day, it's because you're doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you do that, the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is unlimited. And this is what we learn about fasting, that fasting along with patience are the two deeds that are mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards without any limit. Everything else will have a particular reward for it. Whereas the reward for fasting is unlimited. It will be tied into the level of sincerity. It will be tied into the level of hardship that you face. It will be tied into how much your body is telling you, you know, eat, 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 eat. And you're like, no, I'm going to wait till Maghrib to eat. Go ahead, you were going to say something. So does that mean that getting a reward for something in this life, it takes away from the, the amount of reward you get in the next life? Potentially, yes. Potentially, yes. So if a, if a person is seeking that reward in this life with the reward of the hereafter, then the reward of the hereafter may be diminished. However, if a person is doing it purely for the sake of Allah and he just happens to get reward in this life, then that's purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it does not diminish it. But that's the, the combined intention of, hey, I want to go in this life and go in the next at the same time. It's better to stay away from those intentions, but rather make it purely for the sake of the hereafter and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant a person good in this life as well. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He then concludes, and the and good deeds are naturally multiplied by 10. So you do one good deed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is naturally multiplying it by 10, and that's being even multiplied more so because the person is fasting, because the person is fasting. So this is just a brief introduction to the virtues of fasting. The next chapter that Imam al-Bukhari goes on to bring is that fasting is a chapter, is an expiation for sins. The next chapter is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared a gate for the people of paradise for fasting. And these are all the virtues that Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah mentions from fasting. But what we really want to get into is the actual fiqh of fasting, is the actual fiqh of fasting. So the first thing we want to start off with is the sighting of the moon. The first thing we want to start off with is the sighting of the moon. Let me just find that chapter for you, inshallah. The statement of the Prophet ﷺ, start observing on seeing the crescent moon of Ramadan and stop observing uh, fasting on seeing the crescent moon of Shawwal. And Ammar said, whoever observes fasting on a doubtful day is disobeying Abu Qasim. And this goes into the first hadith. So here Imam Bukhari rahimahullah, he starts off the chapter heading with a hadith of the Messenger of Allah So now Imam Bukhari rahimahullah, when he uses the chapter heading as a, he, when he uses hadith as a chapter heading of the Messenger of Allah what he's showing over here is that the words of the Messenger of Allah are better than our own words. So if you can find an opportunity where the Messenger of Allah has said something, rather than giving your own opinion in your own words, use the words of the Messenger of Allah and that is what Imam al-Bukhari is doing over here. So the Messenger of Allah he gave a clear commandment that start fasting with the seeing of the crescent moon of Ramadan. Meaning that whenever you see the hilal of Ramadan, then that is when you start fasting. Do not start fasting before that. You know, a lot of people think that, hey, let me approximate the number of days, even if I don't see the moon of Ramadan, let me just fast to be on the safe side. 
The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is telling us that there is no fasting on the day of doubt. Fasting of Ramadan begins with certainty. So even though you may end up making a mistake and you may start Ramadan a day late, then make up that day at the end. But don't start fasting Ramadan before the time has actually come. So fasting in Ramadan has a set time and that was with the sighting of the moon. That is with the sighting of the moon. And then same thing with Shawwal. Don't stop fasting for Ramadan until you have certainty. You know, someone may approximate, use calculations and say, you know what, fasting in Ramadan is going to end at such and such time. So I will stop fasting over here. But this should not be the case. The moon actually needs to be sighted. Now this ties us into the concept that we alluded to last week, is that we live in a day and age where people are using calculations to tell us when Ramadan is beginning and ending. We can use those calculations as a secondary form of proof. We can use those calculations as an approximation, but to say for certainty that Ramadan will start based upon this calculation and end upon this calculation, I personally feel that this is incorrect. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمْ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْ That whoever amongst you sees the crescent of the moon, then start fasting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly could have told us, you know, approximate the number of days, do taqdeer of it. That concept existed in the past. But He didn't tell us to do that. He told us to go and sight the moon. He told us to go and sight the moon. Now let us take Hadith 1906. Narrated Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam mentioned Ramadan and said, Do not observe fasting unless you see the crescent moon, and do not give up fasting till you see the crescent moon. But if the sky is overcast and you cannot see the moon, then act on estimation that count Sha'ban as 30 days and also Ramadan as 30 days. So now in that situation where there is overcast on the sky, then the Messenger of Allah says, give the full extent of the month, meaning that no Islamic month will ever be more than 30 days, right? So on that uh, you know, 29th day, if it ends up being you know, overcast, go ahead and fast, the, go ahead and approximate 30 days. And if you end up making a mistake, then you make up for it later, but you don't obligate fasting early, nor do you give up fasting early, nor do you give up fasting early, but fasting has its prescribed time with the sighting of the moon. 1907, narrated by Abdullah ibn Umar as well. Allah's Messenger وسلم, said, the month can be 29 nights, and uh, the Messenger وسلم, said, the month can be 29 nights or days, and do not fast till you see the crescent moon, and if the sky is overcast, then complete Sha'ban as 30 days, then complete Sha'ban as 30 days. 1908, again by Abdullah ibn Umar the Prophet said, the month is like this and this. At the same time, he showed the fingers of both his hands thrice and left out one, thir- one thumb on the third time. Meaning that the Messenger of Allah is saying that the month is 29 or 30 days. That is what the Messenger of Allah is saying in this hadith. 1909, narrated Abu Hurairah anhu, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, uh, said, or said Abu Qasim, that uh, start observing fast on seeing the crescent moon of Ramadan and give up fasting on seeing the crescent moon of Shawwal and if the sky is overcast and you cannot see it, complete 30 days of Sha'ban. Um Salama radiallahu anha, the Prophet vowed to keep uh, aloof from his wives for a period of one month and after the completion of 29 days, he went either in the morning or in the afternoon to his wives. Someone said to him, you vowed that you would not go to your wives for one month. He said, he replied, yes, this month was 29 days. This month was 29 days. And the last hadith in this chapter, narrated Anas radiallahu anhu, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam uh, vowed to keep aloof from his wives for one month 
and he had dislocation of his leg. So he وسلم, stayed in Mashruba, which is a particular area, for 29 nights and then came down. Some people said, Oh, Allah's Messenger, you vowed to stay aloof for one month. He said, the month is of 29 days. The month is of 29 days. Now, Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, what is he doing by repeating the same concept in several different ways? Number one, to show us that the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was not just preserved by a handful of companions, but in fact it was preserved by all of his companions. It was preserved by all of his companions. Some of them male, some of them female. Particularly when it comes to uh, acts of ibadat, um, Al-Hakim, one of the great scholars of the past, he said the ahkam found in the Sunnah one third of it was preserved by women. One third of it was preserved by women. And this shows us the level of female scholarship at the time of the Prophet and even after that, that they narrated hadith, they taught hadith, and this is how one third of ibadat was preserved by women through the women narrating hadith. So women have a place in Islamic scholarship and they should be encouraged to become scholars. They should be encouraged to get to the highest level of Islamic knowledge in scholarship. Number two is that Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah He's showing us who the frequent you know, companions who accompany the Prophet are. So Abdullah bin Amr in this chapter has three hadith, has three particular hadith. Even though they're similar in wording, there are differences in all of them. And this shows us that some companions spent more time learning than other companions. One of those companions was Abdullah bin Amr and he loved to follow the, the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Number three, Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah is showing us on the Islamic month can either be 29 or 30 days. What is that determined by? It's determined by the sighting of the moon. Now this was a conflict that they had at the time of the Prophet wasallam, where the Prophet openly took an oath that I will not approach any of my wives for the period of one month. Then 29 days later when the Prophet wasallam came down and went to see one of his wives, they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, you said you were going to stay away from a month. And the Messenger of Allah he responded by saying, this month is 29 days. This month is 29 days. Now what is the wisdom from an Islamic calendar having 29 or 30 days? Who can tell me that? What is a possible wisdom that you can think of between a month having 29 and 30 days and you don't know this in advance? You do? Okay, sort of yes, sort of no. One, that's one element of it, that it doesn't become routine. That, the, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to keep us on our toes, that you're not always constantly in, an, uh, in a routine. That's one element of it. Two, what else? Ties into something we mentioned last week. What did we mention about the sighting of the moon? Sighting of the moon is an act of? Ibadah, fantastic. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving us an, an, an other opportunity to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by going out and seeking the moon. If it was already determined, predetermined 29 or 30 days, you know, each month is 29 or each month is 30, or you know in advance which one is 29 and 30, then you're deprived of this act of ibadah. Number three is that it's keeping the Muslims active. Number four, number <laughs> number four, it's tying the Muslims to the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is forcing us to interact with nature. You know, in this day and age, how often do you go to the mountain to look at the moon or to look at the setting of the sun? We don't do it, right? Even though Banff is literally like 45 minutes away from us, we don't do it. 
Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He enforces this upon us. You have to interact with nature because it is, that is where you find the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you're deprived of nature, you're not going to see the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when it's forced upon the Muslims to go out and look for the moon because they don't know if it's 29 or 30 days, this forces them to interact with nature. And these are just some of the wisdoms behind it, some of the wisdoms behind it. Now what I want to conclude this section with is this whole concept of global sighting versus local sighting. Every year, you know, Alhamdulillah in Calgary, we're pretty blessed. You guys, if you've lived outside of Calgary, you know how big of a mess it is all over the world. Well, in the Western world, right? But in Calgary, Alhamdulillah, for the most part, we're pretty united, right? You know, we all agree when Ramadan will start and Ramadan will end for the most part. Now, as a difference of opinion, it's very important to understand that there is a valid difference of opinion on this issue. Both opinions are valid. But when you look at the generality of the texts that are mentioned over here, it clearly shows us that the generality of the texts are alluding to the permissibility and encouragement of global sighting, right? So that if the moon is sighted anywhere in the world, then this is sufficient for the whole entire globe. You don't need to see it locally, right? This is what the texts are alluding to. However, if you're in a particular part of the Western world where they do follow local sighting, and the moon was sighted somewhere else that the local authorities are not accepting it, what should you do in that situation? Follow your local community. Because the greater objective behind it is always that of unity. Keeping the Ummah united, keeping the community united is always the greater objective, is always the greater objective. And that in summary is the point over here. That focus on uniting the Ummah rather than finding a way to divide them. You'll notice that Shaitan uses this, the sighting of the moon, as an opportunity to divide the Ummah. That we will not speak to one another, we will not pray in each other's mosques, we will call each other like bad names like Fasik and things like that just because of a minor fiqh issue. And that should not be the case. That should not be the case. So that in summary is the discussion of the, of the moon sighting issue. It is an act of ibadah that is encouraged for all of us to do. We should go out and seek it. And alhamdulillah, we should thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the blessing of you know, having a unified community in Calgary where you know, we pretty much start and finish the month of Ramadan at the same time. Inshallah, next week we will actually get into the actual fiqh of the fasting itself. Today we briefly just covered the chapter of the sighting of the moon. And next week we'll talk about those things that nullify the fast as well as the fiqh of Eid and the fiqh of Etikaf. Bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. That's coming up next week inshallah. Using, no, no, it's perfectly fine. Using a suwak is not a problem as long as nothing is swallowed from it. So you know sometimes the, the wood will break off. Make sure you don't swallow that. You spit that out when it happens. Alright, so what should you do in that situation? In that situation my personal opinion is that it's very important for an individual to have a local mosque and a local community. So whatever your local mosque is, whatever your local community is, that is who you should stick to. That is part of having unity within your community. If you can't achieve unity in the city, then at least try to have unity with the mosque. So the mosque that you're praying at regularly, the mosque that has an imam that you trust, then that is the mosque that you should follow, whatever they decide, even if it goes against your own personal fiqh opinion. Wallahu ta'ala Last question, Ibrahim. Can you use mouthwash when you're fasting? And the answer is yes, as long as you don't swallow it. Uh, then it's perfectly fine to use mouthwash, perfectly fine to use toothbrush and toothpaste. Um, we'll get into the issue of breath mints and gum next week, but those sort of things that I mentioned already, those are permissible. Toothpaste, toothbrush, mouthwash, siwak, all that is permissible. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barakatuh.